If you would please take your Bibles out and open them to the book of the Rome, the book to the, the letter to the Romans. Uh, there we continue our study this morning. If you've read ahead and you've you've really wondered how you preach on verses one to sixteen, I promise you there's a way. Uh, we are coming to the end of this letter, and we're looking at this what has probably been one of, or what is probably one of Paul's most well-known writings to the church. Certainly one of the one of the most well-known writings in the New Testament, and even people who would not call themselves Christians are familiar with the letter to the Roman church just because it is so expansive in terms of what it deals with. It deals with our personal relationships with one another. It deals with our personal relationship to God. It deals with what we would call righteousness, holiness, and sin. It really does hit every single point or pretty well every single point of the gospel as it kind of draws us into what is the biblical expression of God's good news to Christians. Of course, you've heard me many times express the gospel as that God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God so that we locate our righteousness in Christ so that we are not those who are creating our righteousness. We have what Martin Luther once called an alien righteousness, a righteousness not our own that comes from Christ that we might be declared and made righteous and live righteously. And so Romans has done a great job at helping us understand why we need to be declared righteous because there is no one good, not one, no one who does good, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. There is not one. He talks about that in Romans 3 and then builds from there. He builds from there and we come to the culmination of it really at the end of chapter 15. Now that's not to say there's not some instruction here in Romans 16, but the the primary instructive aspect of Romans ends at the end of 15, and yet we still find ourselves in Romans, and so the question we must, have, we must ask and answer is why? Well, that's because we can't discount this very long list of names and these last-minute instructive ideas that Paul gives us because even a list of names has something to say to us about those people, about the work of the gospel, about the church, and how we understand these things. In fact, I would even argue there's a message here for you and me this morning that is vital for us to grasp. So without delay, let's turn our attention now to God's Word. We are looking at Romans chapter 16, verses 1 to 16. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant Word. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cancray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. 
Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, whose work, who's worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrabus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. So is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for this list of names. It has something to say to us, something very poignant and very real and very rich. Help us to receive this morning from you, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. The other morning when I was in that state of half dreaming, half awake, uh, I was kind of coming out of a sleep and I was dreaming that Rachel and I had, some of you will remember this, one of those long rectangular cameras that you held like this that had the little flash, flash cubes on top that would flash and turn. Some of you are old enough to remember one of those. If you didn't have one of those, you didn't really live. <laughs> These contraptions were funny, but they made, like Polaroid cameras, snapshots. And the pictures were the worst. We have pictures. I have some pictures left over from those days, and they're just awful. You can't really see anything. It's like, oh, yeah, that's some water there, and there's some people. I mean, it could be people. It could be sandcastles. It could be snowmen, but no, it wouldn't be snow at the beach. But um, anyway, those things gave us snapshots. Of course, back in the day when we were young, it was just like, man, this is straight-up magic, this little thing can help me remember, however grainily, this experience that I had. But we had them. We had our snapshots, and we had albums of these things. And some people, uh, most people don't print pictures anymore. We still have some pictures, pictures printed in our house. And I love to go back and look at them. And Rachel and I, in 2011, we went to Ireland, and we have pictures that we took like with a real camera, a little point-and-shoot, where we had to wait and go get the pictures developed and see how they turned out. And it was fun. We have those pictures, and they're reminders of things. We will look back at that and go, oh, yeah, remember when we did this and we walked up this hill or, or we found this, this castle out in the middle of nowhere that was, you know, a thousand years old? And it's these wonderful reminders from these pictures that we have stored away. Well, when I tell you that verse, or chapter 16, rather, is a testament, right? As I said in your bulletin, a testament of faithfulness. They are snapshots of faithfulness. Paul has given us little vignettes, and maybe not quite vignettes, but little snapshots of people who have done or been something vital in the ministry of the gospel, and he's calling it to memory. He's inviting the readers of this to greet these people. Why? Well, because they're dear friends, but in most cases because they have done or been something of value to the Apostle Paul or to the ministry of the church in labor of the gospel, something that's worth calling attention to. 
These people have, have done something demonstrative in their lives that have been a blessing not just to Paul, but to the church, to the church's people, to the foundation of the church, and to all the aspects that go into church building. So that when Paul mentions these names, beloved of God, we have kind of a hall of faith, as it were, a hall or a testimony to faithfulness. And it should greatly encourage us to see lists like this. They are snapshots of real people who lived in real time, who did real things and made real sacrifices and gave real uh, encouragement and helped produce real joy for a real gospel message for the real transformation in real people who were really going to hell apart from Christ. And so when we look at this, sure, we can skip it if we want to. Ah, It's just a list of names, and they're hard to pronounce anyway. So let's just skip over that part. Or we can let the reality wash over us when we think about Andronicus or Junia. My kinsmen and fellow prisoners, these are people that, that, were, that were real, they lived, they did something meaningful and valuable and well worth noting in a letter where they could have easily passed away. And we don't know them, we have no idea. Most of the people on this list, we have no idea who they are. And we would have no idea who they were if they weren't listed here, that they're listed here is that one piece of ancient literature that says Mary lived, Mary died, and she worked hard for the church. Who is Mary? I don't know. But I do know that she worked hard for the church because we have a little snapshot here. A little snapshot that might be a little grainy, but what the snapshot is of is very clear that it's faithfulness. And so when I think about how does Romans end, it ends in the most fitting of ways, in a series of snapshots of what it meant to the Apostle Paul for a group of people to be faithful to one another and to the gospel. And so if that's, even if that's all we take from that list, that's well worth a pause to say this is worth remembering. It's worth reading these names out loud in inspired Scripture for us to be reminded of what it means for people in the church to be faithful, faithful to the Lord, faithful to and with one another. That testimony, that testimony is vital. That's what we're told in the book of Revelation. How do they overcome Satan? How do they overcome the kingdom of darkness? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And so these stand as testimonies, small testimonies of people who have come before us. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see this morning, and it's namely this, that God's faithfulness and our faithfulness are essential to the church. That God's faithfulness and our faithfulness, they are essential to the church. When we look at what this paragraph actually is. It is a paragraph, it is a written record of evidence of faithfulness displayed, of, of what did it look like in Rome. So, you know, in, in first century A.D., what did it look like in Rome for faithfulness to occur? Well, I would argue it looks no different than it does now. In fact, it's very relatable as we look at people 
who labored well, who labored faithfully, who were fellow workers, who were fellow prisoners, who had churches and and meetings in their homes, and who provided for the needs of the saints, who loved well, who encouraged joy, who was willing to stand with each other in hard spaces. Beloved, that should be describing exactly how we exist in 2024. And so in this way, this is supremely relatable. That yes, we are given a snapshot, as it were, of what it really looks like to be faithful. I love all the principles are in Romans. It's all there. These are the people who lived it out. And so they're worth remembering. And so that when we, when we look at this list of saints, I've used the word faithfulness several times. I'll use it several more. We need to be reminded that this list of saints really is a reminder of faithfulness. But let me tell you what else it's a reminder of. It's a reminder of supreme mercy. It is a reminder of mercy as we see our lives intersect with other lives, maybe for a season, maybe till the day that we die, who come along and bring encouragement, bring real gospel love and hope and truth. It is a testimony of not, fa- not only faithfulness and mercy, but a testimony of grace, God's elaborate, lavish grace to put people in our lives to help us see the truths of the gospel more clearly. And I don't just mean from preaching. I mean people who embody gospel principles in your life, who just bring a certain sense of help and relief and joy and any other way in which you find encouragement because however imperfectly, they too are living out the precepts of the gospel. Paul, in this opening statement, he speaks of Phoebe. He calls her a servant of the church, and then he asks that she be received as one worthy of the saints. I love that he uses this word saints here. As he's talking about her being received as worthy of the saints, we need to get, know that it's, you can easily extrapolate what he's saying, that she is a saint, and she's to be received as such. So Paul, looking at this church, the Roman church and Christians in general, as those who are, however imperfect, are saints. That we are called the holy ones. That's what that word means. That's all it means. It's a derivative of the Greek word hagios, which is holy. And so those who are saints are the holy ones. And so when he talks about Phoebe being received as a, in a way that is worthy of the saints, who are saints? They are holy ones. Who makes them holy? Christ does. What is the obligation? What is the job of a saint? The obligation and job of a saint is to serve the Holy One who has made us holy for His glory and for the good of our brothers and sisters and for the world. And so, who are the saints? They're the Holy Ones, made holy by Christ, who are called by Christ, who are saved by Christ, who are saved for the glory of Christ, and who go with and for and by the power of Christ to bring the light of the gospel to the world. And so when we begin to see saints as what they are and how she is to be received, we're getting some insights into Paul's real gratefulness for this group of people that he mentions here. Not just that, though. We're getting a sense of what does it mean to be faithful Christians? What does it mean to be faithful church members? What does it mean 
to be a community of fidelity in the world. We have it all here. So when we look at this list, a handful of these I'm going to mention by name, and the rest I'm going to put into different categories. But Phoebe is important. When we mention her by name, Paul says about Phoebe, Phoebe, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Concray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you. For she has been a patron or literally a help to many and of myself as well. Phoebe garners a lot of attention because there are some questions about Phoebe. The first question is, is why does Paul commend her to the church? A lot of people think it's because she was the one carrying the letter of, of, that he wrote of Romans to the church. So in commending her, he's committing to receive her. She's bringing the correspondence to you. Whether she is or where she isn't is really not the point. I tend to think she probably is, given the way he commends her. That's really not the issue. The issue is, how is she to be received? I'm commending her to you as one worthy of your reception. In other words, you might not know her as well as I do, but what I've witnessed in her is worthy of a saint. That's why he tells them to receive her as such. Now, please keep in mind, he's not saying this about another dude. In the first century, he is speaking about a woman in this way. So often Christianity gets a bad rap as a religion of suppression that we try to suppress women and, and keep them down. But I want us to see in its earliest letters that Paul had entrusted a worthy task to this woman of noble character and he asked the church to receive her as worthy of a saint, not in any sort of oppressive way, but with a title of honor. But I want you to notice the main title of honor that she bears. He calls her a servant. Now, people will argue over this because the word there is deaconess. And is he calling her an official deaconess of the church or is he calling her a servant of the church? And it's not very clear. It is not very clear from the context whether he means an official title or he's just calling her a servant. But let me, let me, let me tell you, it doesn't matter. That, that, that to me is of secondary importance. What is important is that the first words that come to his mind about the sister that he is commending to be received worthy of the saints is servant. That her goal, her ministry, as it were, is to serve the church. So what is his testimony about Phoebe? She's faithful. She is a faithful servant in the church. In this little town, a little port town, close to the Corinth church that she's been sent from to bring possibly this letter from the Apostle Paul. So what does this do for us? I mean, one application I think we stand here and make right out of the gate is that how do we look for opportunities to be faithful? And are we looking for opportunities to be faithful? Are we taking what we have and looking for ways in which we might be servants in the church, servants of our brothers and sisters? Are we inspired by the love and grace of Jesus Christ that has rescued us from the depths of hell itself and saying, now how can we bring this light and love and saltiness to other people? Because when you're looking at this list, it's made up of people who did just that, who said, how can I be of service in the kingdom of God? 
And we need, it need not be lost on us that this little welcome her how in the Lord, that little prepositional phrase, welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. So when we think about this in the Lord and worthy of the saints, there's this idea that she's to be honored, she's to be respected, there's to be deference shown. Why? Because she's not coming purely as herself. She's coming as an emissary, as an ambassador of the Lord's work. Beloved, we so often, and in America it's easy to do because we live in a very individualistic society, we forget that we as believers in Christ, we can sometimes forget, let me put it like that, that we as believers in Christ are in the Lord, that our goal is to live as a worthy saint in the world. And I'm saying this to myself as much as I'm saying this to anybody. That our, our calling is to shine the light on God's goodness, God's glory, God's faithfulness by the way that we live our lives. And in some real way, Phoebe had done this. In fact, we know this primarily because, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well, so help her. Why does, he, why does he ask the church to help her? Because she's been helping people. She's been faithfully laboring. Remember, she's a servant. She's to be received worthy of the saints. She's been commended. Why? Because she's been faithful. She has done well. And he's saying, treat her as she has treated the people, treated you people, treated the church. She looked for opportunities to display faithfulness, and Paul is asking that, she be, that that be reciprocated to her. When you, when, you go on from this, when you go on from that list, so you have Phoebe there who's at the high place, and it's, and it's you know, reasonable that she carried the letter. Paul gives this woman in the Lord this commendation, great value. Then he starts on another list of names, some of which are familiar, and some of them are unfamiliar. And here's what I want to argue. The names here are secondary. They really are. It's cool that we remember them. It's cool that it connects us to real people. The names themselves are secondary. What's primary here is how those names are described, how those people are described. Right, right out of the gate, we've get, we get Prisca and Aquila, and Prisca is just a variant of Priscilla. So think of Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ. And so when you see that fellow workers in Christ, that comes in verse 3, and Paul will mention this again in verse 9 of Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. When we start looking at this list of names, first and foremost, it's those who labored for the glory of Christ and the gospel. But this fellow worker, these are ones who labored with Paul. When Paul talks about these people, he is acknowledging that they have in some way, shape, or form picked up his burden with him and labored with him in the ministry of the gospel. What did that look like in the early church? Well, it looked a lot like it looks now. Planting churches. Going around and planting churches in places where Christ had not been named and helping people see the truth and the power and reality of Christ and redemption and the gospel. This going into communities and laboring where people were lost and needed the word. It was deaconing. 
It was taking opportunities to look at, at the vast array of people around them and recognize they needed service. How best can we serve them? Some were wealthy Christians who were able to use their resources. Some had a trade. They were able to use their skills. Some had great wisdom. They were able to use their counsel. In any way, when Paul is talking about faithful or fellow workers, rather, he's talking about people who took what they had and said, how can I use this for kingdom growth? And please, not just making their churches bigger numerically, but helping people understand the gospel. Not just swelling their numbers, but helping their roots to go deeper. Because that's what it is. We all, we all live in Florida. We know what it looks like when a tree that doesn't have a deep root system, a good storm comes in and pfft, that thing's over. But when they're deeply rooted... They have a strong foundation. They can withstand a lot. The goal of the early church was never just critical mass. It was critical depth. And that should still be the goal of the church, is critical depth. So they planted. They served. They sought to meet needs. They looked at the poor and languishing the suffering and the destitute in their midst, and they said, how can we bring the truth to them? Beloved, they were faithful. That's the beauty of faithfulness. So when he talks about these fellow workers, that's one set of people in this ending salutation or this ending commission to greet. In verse 7, he mentions Andronicus and literally Hunia, or Hunia, but we'll call it Junia, so it, this is how English works. My kinsmen and fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Fellow prisoners. So when we get fellow workers, literally in Greek, with workers and with prisoners. These with prisoners, these with prisoners these are people who he can, he can identify. They bore persecution. They bore suffering. They faced potential death as a consequence of standing with Paul. Beloved of God, can we put a, can we put a price on that type of faithfulness? You know, we, we'll jokingly say, these are my ride-or-die friends, right? We all have, hopefully have some ride-or-die friends. And if you're married, I hope at least one of your ride-or-die friends is your spouse. Because if that's not true, we've got another problem. But these were friends who, in the face of strict hardship and persecution, stood with the Apostle Paul to the point of imprisonment. And this is where we get at what does it mean to be in a community of believers? It means a love that is profoundly different from the world, a love that does not stand and run, but, or that does not turn and run, but rather stands with one another through every season, pain and joy alike, that there is not abandonment. Now, I'm not saying to go out and go get yourself imprisoned and say you're being faithful to Christ, but at some point, our unity has to be of such a nature that we're ready to stand with brothers and sisters in their most desperate hour. And in an hour, that will be costly to us. When I think of fellow prisoners, the word that comes to mind is the word burden. And so Paul is telling us that these people were faithful 
to bear his burdens in his most needy time. So I don't, I don't think that that means we're all going to go to prison with each other. But I do think it's much more comfortable, convenient, and easy to step back in those really hard times. And we'll do it for good reasons. It's really none of my business. I don't want to upset anybody. I don't want to stick my nose in where it doesn't belong. And beloved, I'm not saying be a busybody. I'm not saying being nosy. I'm saying step into the hurt with people. Some of you do that really great. I've seen it on display. And it's really beautiful to watch. And it's a, it is a beautiful thing when someone does it with you. Steps into your most desperate place and says, I love you. And I won't let you, I won't let you get away from this. And I'm not going to let you do this by yourself. I'm about to mention Lord of the Rings, but it's, it's poignant. It's poignant. This is more in the movies, not the book. So this is the, 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 the second tier. You remember at Helm's Deep in the two towers, Helm's Deep is besieged by Urukai, almost unnumbered, and, and the men are failing, they're losing. And at the and you know, look to dawn, look to the east, and the coming of the day. And as the sun's coming up, Gandalf shows up on the hill, and he said he's looking down, and he says, Thad, and stands alone. And then Aamer comes up and said, He's not alone. And then the camera pans out, and you see the, the forces of Rohan about to go wreak some havoc on some orcs. The orcs don't know it yet. Theoden doesn't know it yet. He's in a desperate place, and he's like, you know, hey, let's just go out and ride and die, because that's what we got. That literally is what he says, for, for glory. But there's that reminder that when we are in a community, we're not alone. And would, would that we be the ones who stand on that hill when someone says they're alone, and we go, nah, they're not alone. We're with them. That's what Paul is talking about here, not Lord of the Rings, but he's talking about having fellow workers and fellow prisoners that in that moment when we are between the hammer and the anvil, that we're saying, hey, I'm going to get in there with you. I'm going to stand there and absorb some of that blow so that you're not feeling this alone. And it's a beautiful thing. He mentions here, kinsmen or brothers and there, there actually is some debate as to what he means he's talking about fellow fellow Jews which is what I think he's talking about people who are Hebrew in nature and that he mentions these 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 kinsmen these brothers these people who are beloved so in your in your translation it may be something different but in mine he'll say uh, you know a beloved brother or beloved my beloved our beloved whatever way he's talking about people who are important to him relationally so people whom he loves, that there's a spiritual bond, there might be an ethnic bond, but when he talks about them being beloved, they are beloved by God. First and foremost, we've said this often, when he speaks of one as the title beloved, they are beloved by God, but then they are, they are endearing to Paul for the same reasons we've already talked about, because in some way, they've stood with Paul, that they're beloved by God, they're beloved by Paul and the church. And he talks about them being in Christ. His two big prepositional phrases in this paragraph is in Christ and in the Lord. And what does that mean? When he talks about those who are in Christ, who are in the Lord, those who are bound to Christ and the church by faith, that we have faith and trust in Christ. And so our unity is in that, in that bond, that our love is found in that bond. 
that our fidelity is, is operates in that bond. And so that in some senses when we are loving, when we are being faithful, when we are serving, when we are suffering, and when we are doing all these things with one another, we're doing it out of love and worship to and for Christ. That doesn't take away that we're doing it for people too. But we are motivated by the love of Christ who gave Himself for us. Because, beloved, this morning, if you are sitting here and you say, yes, Christ is Lord, yes, I am trusting in Him alone for salvation, He has come to you in your most desperate place. And your desperate place might not be like mine. Mine was in a jail cell. Jail cell. Try not to say it right. (laughs) Try not to say it. Jail cell. It's just very hard to transition from jail cell. So jail cell. My prison cell. There you go. So mine, mine came there. Maybe yours didn't come there, but here's what I promise you. Wherever, wherever the truth found you, you were just as desperate as I was in the wee hours of that morning. And Paul is saying, because Christ, we have been found in the Lord, then we come out of worship in the Lord to serve and to love. Because here's the thing, and, and this, is, this is just a simple matter. Faithfulness is a product of faith. If there is no faithfulness in our lives, we have to seriously question the amount of faith we actually have. But if we have faith, then the natural fruit of that needs to be faithfulness. And beloved, this is not works righteousness. This is not me saying you have to somehow earn something. This is just making a very simple truth that if we have faith, we will have faithfulness. And if faith is waning, so will faithfulness be. There are several things, there are several people he mentions, brothers who are with them, or, or uh, just a grouping of names that he calls on all the saints. But I want us to, there is some speculation about some of the names here. Some people think Herodian that Paul mentions in this list is connected with Herod. That may or may not be true. Some people think that the mention of Narcissus is a, is a house of slaves that had been converted under the gospel. That may or may not be true. We don't have to speculate on those things, but here's what we can say. That whether they are in a king's palace or slaves in a house, that the gospel saves every one of them the same way. That the gospel is no respecter of person or position, that it meets us in death to give us life. That it meets us where we are lost to bring us to a place where we are found. That it meets us in despair to give us hope. And so when you look at this list of names, here's one other thing that we take away from this, that every aspect of society needs the word. We live in a time where people want a quick turn of phrase or new ideas or, or neat philosophical, you know, ideologies. And beloved, they, they just need the word. I need the word. You need the word. The world needs the word. And so that every, every soul that we meet Every person that we come in contact with needs the Word of God. And as Paul labors here at the end of this letter, people like Julia and Olympus and Hermes and Hermas, Rufus, Herodian, Ampliatus, Urbanus, 
These are people who he's commending as taking opportunities to bring their faithfulness out of faith, born out of faith in Christ to bear and to work in the church. One other thing that I'll mention here, and again, we don't know for sure, but some people have speculated that, that Rufus, this is the same Rufus as mentioned who was the son of Simon of Cyrene, and that his mother had been a great servant in the church and had also at some point served Paul. Is that true? I don't know, but it doesn't matter because Rufus is mentioned and his mother was shown to be faithful and we can let all the speculation fall away and just grab onto the nugget that's right there, which is what does it look like to have a snapshot of faithfulness? It looks like these nameless saints who you've never met and never will unless until we get to heaven who did something worthy of mention, and so that the Apostle Paul mentions them here. He, he brings this paragraph to a close by saying, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, I dare say we're going to start this practice again. There, there are places in the world who will do this. When I was training it in... Um, at RTS, I was, I was getting a, an emphasis in mission, thinking that perhaps I might be a missionary. And one of our professors was telling us about a, a culture that he was in, and, and the men would greet each other by kissing them, not even on the cheek, but very close to the lips. And being from America, how his, his natural inclination was to stiffen and pull back, which is natural, of course. And having to remember that it was a sign of affection and brotherly love in their culture and a sign that we are brothers and to have to learn how to relax and receive the affection from a fellow brother. So I don't think we're going to be doing that. However, here's what I'll say. Whatever signs of affection that we have in our culture that are good and right and true and beautiful, beloved, can we, can we exercise those in our body? Can we exercise those in our community? that we embrace the affection, that we seek to give affection and embrace community because those things are beautiful in their time, because we don't know what struggles and hardships a brother or sister is bringing to the table who might thrive, that we, that we outwardly show appreciation for and love to those who are in our midst. Because when he says, greet one another with a holy kiss, I don't see this as so different from See to it that we are a community defined by love. Let us be known by our love, by the way that we cherish one another, by the way that we encourage one another, by the way that we embrace one another, by the way that we love one another. And so that when we look at this list, we think what is the, the overarching idea is very simple for me to pull, but it's the idea that faithfulness is God's gift and, and it's God's calling. When this list of names that sits before us, as I told you, they're historical. So we shouldn't think of this as make-believe or storytelling. Real people. And in a season in life, they had the opportunity to show faithfulness one to another, and they, and they did it. But they do it because God has gifted people uniquely to be faithful. You here in this room... You members of the chapel, you who attend here regularly, you have a gifting that can be used for the glory of Christ and the good of your neighbors that is a grand display of God's faithfulness to you and in return, your faithfulness to the Lord. 
we should be using those. We should be looking for opportunities to use those. Because that is a gift that God has given you uniquely and me, and it is a calling that God has given you uniquely and me. And to take advantage of those opportunities to put on display, whether it's encouragement, whether it's standing with. And, and I'm going I'm to take an opportunity to say this. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. When someone is experiencing a death that is close to them, it is the natural inclination of a Christian to want to say words of comfort. And yet we struggle because we don't often know what to say. Let me encourage you. What does faithfulness look like in that moment? Complete silence sometimes. You don't have to tell them that all things work together for the good. We know that. What they really need is your shoulder. What they really need is your embrace. They really need, maybe it is a kiss. Or maybe it's something else. It doesn't have to be filled with words. So faithfulness is not just about proclamation. It is that, but it's not just that. Faithfulness is not about having a skill set that is usable. It is that, but it isn't just that. Sometimes faithfulness is the brother or sister who doesn't say a word, but they show up. And that can be a beautiful thing. This list of people is about people who are faithful in prison, in labors, in love, in serving, and in a whole host of other ways. It's my prayer that we at the chapel can be what that is. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word this morning. Very unique, but also very powerful. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in us to be faithful, to, to embody these things, to be the very things that this passage of Scripture talks about, that we might live holy for you, and we might live as a blessing to other people. You have uniquely gifted every one of us to be faithful in your community. I pray that we would do that. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.